Our text today is taken from the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. I want to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, which is the last verse in the passage or in the chapter. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, as is his custom, in the first three chapters of this letter to the church at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul outlines and unpacks the content of the grace of God in the person of Christ. And in doing so, he establishes the fact that the grace of God, as it is in the person and work of Christ, is the means for our right standing with God, and it is also the means by which we have gained a new status with God. And that status is that we are now the children of God. So that's what he has established in the first three chapters. So what I want to do before we come back to our text here in chapter 4, verse 32, I want to provide somewhat of a summary of the first three chapters of uh, Ephesians. And we'll do it by citing four particular verses from those first uh, three chapters. The first place that I think uh, we can begin to look at the summary of the riches of God's grace in the person of Christ, uh, that Paul uses this, the foundation for everything that he says in chapter four and, and moving forward is this, uh, it's found in chapter one, verse three. Uh, this is again, the first highlight from the first three chapters. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the point that Paul is making here is that because of our faith in Christ, we are already in possession of every spiritual blessing that is needed. It is not fully realized in all of our moment-by-moment -moment situations, but that is the truth. It's the essence of what Peter says elsewhere, where he says that he has given to us everything that is necessary for life and godliness. So let us remember that as we move into the practical or the uh, ex exhortation portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that he is addressing a people who are in possession of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul says there to the Ephesians is true for every believer. That's what it means to have faith in Christ. Among other things, it means to have every blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because all of our spiritual blessings are in the person of Christ. A second portion is also from chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where Paul says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Again, same, same rationale. What Paul is doing is addressing all of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And I think it is important for us that as we look at the, the exhortation portions, or as some would say, the application portions of the letters of Paul, understand that all of those imperatives, all of those commands are grounded in the indicatives that he outlines in the earlier portions of his, of his letters. So in this case, every exhortation is grounded in the fact that you have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, and it's grounded in the fact that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit because of your embrace of the gospel. The gospel, as he says, uh, as Paul says, the gospel of your salvation. So everyone who has faith in Christ has every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and everyone who is in Christ is sealed with the Holy Spirit because you do have faith in the gospel of your salvation. A third statement that Paul makes is in chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the grounding of the imperatives or the points of application in the latter portion, the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Everything that Paul commands them to do, Everything that Paul admonishes them to do is grounded in the fact that they are in possession of every spiritual blessing, that they are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and they have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And as we said before, what is true for the church at Ephesus is true for every believer. Let's pause and just think about that for a moment. That right now, whatever your circumstances are, no matter what you feel, no matter what you experience, no matter what you think, no matter your flaws, your failures, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then you are near. You might be a rebellious child, but you are a near rebellious child. And what brings you near to God is not your behavior. It is your belief. And it is your belief that the blood of Jesus has been shed for you. That's what Paul addresses here. So this is true for every believer that if your faith is in Christ, you are brought near to God by the blood of Christ. And everyone who has been brought near has been sealed by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, as Paul says. And everyone who has been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit has every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. One other highlight from chapter, uh, from the first three chapters worth noting. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 22, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. In him. The him here is obviously Christ. 
And it is worth noting that if you go back to chapter 1, look at how many times, and you see it also in chapter 2. So let's say the first two chapters of, of the book of Ephesians. Look at how many times we get the repeated phrase, in him, by him, through him. A reminder to those of us who are in Christ that everything that we have from God, everything necessary for our salvation is in him. It has been accomplished by him. And every benefit that we have with God the Father is through him. And so here Paul says, here's a reality that in him, by virtue of your union with Christ, you are being built into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work in everyone that he brings near to God through the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work in everyone in whom he has sealed until the day of redemption because of their faith in the gospel message of their salvation. The Holy Spirit who is the source for all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ in the heavenly places. The Holy Spirit is at work in you, building you, shaping you to become or be, uh, shaping you as the dwelling place of God. So those are whatever else Paul addresses and he uh, deals with a number of practical implications of our faith in the succeeding chapters, chapters 4 through 6. But all of the exhortations, all of the points of application are grounded in the things that he has established in the first three chapters. And so what we've done is only highlight some of those, those things that the, the indicatives that drive the imperatives. Now, having summarized uh, the grace that frames the commands that are found in uh, the latter portion of Paul's letter and specifically at uh, the command that we will be looking at in a moment, let's look at two additional statements from Paul that serve as a reasoned, uh, as, as reasoned exhortations in light of the position and the possessions that we have in Christ. So in other words, Paul, I want to look at two statements that, that sort of uh, frame the logical extension of what Paul has articulated in the first three chapters. So it, 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 one way that we can put it is in light of these, two, of, of these things. And so Paul gives these exhortations, two of them that we'll look at. One is in chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of, uh, of worthy of the calling that you have been called to. So Paul's exhortation in chapter 4 verse 1 is that Christians, those Christians that he's addressing in Ephesus and by extension every other believer that we are to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called to. So this is a logical extension that, that emanates from Paul for us to reason from the grace that we have received 
in the gospel reason from the fact that we are the sealed possession of God by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Reason from the fact that we are, we have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. So all of these things, Paul says, now walk in a manner in a sense that reflects those four things that we've already talked about. That we should not just, the, the worthiness here, we wanna be absolutely clear. Paul is not saying that our walk makes us worthy. Paul is not saying that our walk will therefore receive for us this calling. Paul is acknowledging all of the things that we've already articulated and so much more in the first three chapters. And the whole point that he is making is because you are in possession of these things. Let your walk reflect the truths that we've already articulated. Let, let your manner of living, let your speech, let your conduct, let your actions, your affections, your attitudes, let it be driven by the calling that God has placed on you. It's not the cause of the calling. Because here's what we were. We were enemies of God. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But God's grace met us in our lowest point and has put us in a different position. And the basis of his exhortation that opens chapter 4 is that who we are in Christ would reflect how we conduct ourselves in our various relations. You also see in chapter 4, verse 17, it's the same logic, just a different way of phrasing it. In chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, Now I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the, the rest of the Gentiles. No longer walk like the rest of the Gentiles. Why? Because the rest of the Gentiles are not being built into the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. The rest of the Gentiles have not been drawn near to God by the blood of Christ. And the rest of the Gentiles have not been, they, they have not only, they, they have not been sealed with the indwelling spirit. And the rest of the Gentiles have not been given access to all of the spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So Paul's rationale is this, but you have. Now I think it's worth pointing out, especially as we articulate or as you walk through all of the exhortations that are found in uh, chapter 4 all the way through chapter 6. It is important to point out, especially as we will look from our text, that our experiences May in, in this world, our experiences, our horizontal experiences, may be exactly the same as the rest of the Gentiles. We will deal with experiences. We will deal with circumstances. We will deal with heartache. We will deal with failures. We will deal with flaws. We will deal with all of the fallout that comes from living in a fallen world just like the rest of the Gentiles. If I may put it uh, in another way, 
that we will experience the deterioration of the flesh like the rest of the Gentiles. We are subject to cancer and disease. We are subject to any other thing that the rest of the Gentiles will experience. But because we are the recipients of what the rest of the Gentiles have not received, Paul's exhortations is that it are, are based on the fact that as we go through the ups and downs and the perils in this life, we don't forget who we are and we don't forget what we have received by virtue of our faith in Christ. Now that brings us to our text, and I want to look at it. I'm, I'm not going to zero in necessarily on, on just the, 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 the full weight of the command. I want to kind of broaden it out a little bit. So here's the first thing that I want to call attention to from our text. Let's re let me read it again. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here's the first thing to note. The context of this verse is primarily, it, it primarily concerns our actions and attitudes towards those with whom we are in fellowship. So what he is addressing here, when he talks about being kind-hearted or, or tender-hearted, when he's talking about being kind, when he's talking about forgiving, the immediate context here is that he is speaking primarily to those are as it relates to our interactions within the fellowship. In verse 25, he uses this phrase, we are members of one another. We are members of one another. So even though he talks about our neighbor, he's not just talking about our neighbor in a generic sense of the rest of humanity, but he's talking about our neighbors within the context of the fellowship uh, of the covenant community. So therefore, the immediate context here has to do with our actions and attitudes towards others within the covenant community, those with whom we are in fellowship with. Here's the second thing to note. The command that Paul gives here presupposes that within the confines of our Christian fellowship, there will be conflict. And there will be contentions. There will be conflict and there will be contentions. Now I say that it presupposes, it doesn't say we have to have conflict, but, but again, remember our point is this, that we will experience in our horizontal relations everything that the Gentiles, or by Gentiles he's referring to unbelievers. So our experiences, our horizontal experiences are not going to be any different from anyone else who lives in this world. When it rains outside, guess what's going to happen if you walk outside? There's going to be rain. God doesn't stop the rain from coming on you. If it's raining, it's raining. And here's what we know about living with other sinners in this world well, in fact, even if we only lived alone, here's what we would discover if we really understood what God's law calls for. If you're the only person in the room and you see yourself through the lens of the law, here's what you would be convinced of. There is a very real evil here. And that evil is me. You would recognize if you fully understood what the law requires, 
that it's not you. So you would see the epitome of human wickedness in yourself. You would recognize that your thoughts are not what they are supposed to be. Your affections are tend to wander. You don't love what you ought to love, and that which you do is not to the right degree. And you don't love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. You'll find out that even if you have done the best that you can in the keeping of the law, that you have failed. And, and in doing so, as Paul has pointed out in Galatians, to be guilty in one part of the law is to be guilty of the whole law. So if you were in a room with no one else in it and the doors are locked, you're locked in the room with an evil person. Now, we know we're not locked in a room. We're, we're shut in. We are. But here's the thing. We, every other person that you encounter, is the sinner that you are. And because you are wicked, because you are evil, guess what's going to happen when evil comes in contact with evil? Even if it's refined evil or not, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that every individual is as wicked as you can be. All I'm saying is that we recognize, first off, that we are flawed. We are fallen. In Christ, we have been granted an alien righteousness, but on our own, we are flawed and we are fallen. And even if we only extended our own personality and manufactured another one of us, you're going to have conflict. The point is that when we are put into community with other flawed individuals, whether it's our neighborhoods, whether it's our schools, whether it's the city in which we live, and here's where we have to take, we, we, we have to take the, the, the glitter off. Even in the context of the covenant community, we are dealing with flawed, failed individuals. And that being the case, trust me, we will have contentions. We will have points of disagreement. We will have conflict. And because we're flawed and we're dealing with other fallen individuals, there are some people that are not going to like you and there are gonna be some people that you're gonna have a hard time liking in return. This command presupposes this. Not only does he say in our text, verse 32, that we are to be uh, kind to one another and tenderhearted and forgiving one another. Look at what he says in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with, and he throws this in just for good measure, along with malice. Here's the ugly side of church experience, and we know that we haven't been able to gather as we ordinarily do. Here's the reality when we come together and even when we are in our separate residences, we are all prone to any one of those negative descriptions that Paul outlines in verse 31. I know we all like to think our intentions and our motives are pure, but malice 
As the Lord tells Cain, when Cain uh, is downfallen because the Lord has received the offering of Abel and not his own, the Lord tells him, Cain, you know what is right. Be careful, do what's right, because evil is at your door. And so we all are prone to everything that Paul describes negatively in verse 31. Yes, we can be malicious. I like the way that we put euphemisms on things and to make them seem less filthy than what they are. So we use the term petty. Brothers and sisters, understand that being petty, in other words, looking real hard to find fault with someone else and overlooking obvious things that we should be looking for is what we would call petty, but the Bible calls malice. And what Paul is saying is that all of us are prone in essence, even in the context of Christian fellowship. I know we shouldn't have to worry about slander when it comes to the covenant community, but have we ever been slandered? Have we ever been gossiped about? And of course, we would be quick to raise our hands, sure. But here's another question. Have we ever participated in the slander of another individual? Have we ever found ourselves content and comfortable in, in, in sharing gossip about someone else? All of the things that Paul addresses here, he's addressing to people who are within the covenant community because he is presupposing here that even in the context of Christian fellowship, there, are going to, there is going to be both conflict and contentions. And those content or those conflicts and contentions, even though they may start from a good place, they will, they will be denigrated very quickly because of the fallenness of the individuals within the context of that fellowship. Here's the third thing to note from this passage. The command that Paul gives here specifically in verse 32 or verses 31 and 32 calls for a conscious action and a mindset that is not natural or that is not native, I should say, to our natural mindset. Paul is calling for a conscious action and a mindset that is not native to our natural mindset. To go back to his, his exhortation in verse 17, don't walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk. The rest of the Gentiles, referring to the unre, unregenerate, and the implication, is the, the implication of the rest of the Gentiles is that their native mindset, he says, is darkened. So their actions flow from that. And so what Paul is commanding here is a consciousness on our part to examine ourselves and our actions and our motives and our attitudes against those things that we have, are, have highlighted from the first three chapters so that as we deal with the reality of conflict, that we're not comfortable with malice, that we're not comfortable with slander, 
that we're not comfortable with being hard-hearted with those that God has put us in fellowship with. Understand that your union with Christ and your fellowship within that union with Christ does not automatically mean you love. It means you've been, you have been loved. And it means you have been given love. And it means that you have the capacity to love. But it's up to you to do the loving. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. He says, God has poured his love abroad in our hearts by his spirit. But it's up to us to do the loving. Right now, as you think about it, you're sitting in your homes, perhaps. Do you know that there is water that is flowing right now in your, in your kitchen, in your bathroom? It's there. It's there. You can let that. Hopefully, as the water bill has been paid and there's been no emergencies, there's water that's flowing. But in order to take advantage of the flowing water, you've got to turn the faucet. The water is there. You don't have to go to a well and pump water. Water is already flowing into your home. But it's up to you to turn the faucet so that the water that is there can flow. But Paul was admonishing believers to be remind or be mindful of is that yes, you will deal with conflict and contentions within the body of Christ. And there are basically two ways that you can respond to it. You can respond to it according to the darkness of your native Gentile fallen nature, or you can respond to these things in light of what you have been given and who you are in Christ. And again, I think his point here is that what he is calling for is not natural to your, or is not native to your natural mindset. What he's calling for is strange. It is radical. Because we in our natural state are always looking to one-up and get even or to get back at. You do me wrong, I'm going to do you wrong. It is natural for us to hold on to grudges. It is natural for our fall in our fallen state to find reasons to pick on you and to pick at you. It's natural in our fallen state to act out of malice. So therefore, the command that grounds these verses, it is not natural to us, but that leads us to the fourth and final thing. Because it's not natural to us, we are therefore directed to the grace that we have received. And the grace that we have received from God through Christ provides both the means and the motive for us to act against our natural inclination. The grace that we have received from God through Christ is the means, it's the instrument by which we are able to do what we are not naturally inclined to do. The grace that we have received from God through Christ provides us for the motive for us to do 
what we are not naturally inclined to do. And I want to single out here, without going into all of the details of circumstances and situations, but Paul says something here that's easy for us to overlook. Not only tells us to forgive, and certainly even as we think of the Lord's Prayer, we are reminded that we are to forgive. But Paul is very explicit about our forgiveness. He says, forgiving one another, even as you have been forgiven by God in Christ. In other words, recognize that your standing before God and your privileges with God is because of God's love for you manifest in the sacrifice of his son. And what Paul is doing is therefore presenting the forgiveness that we have received from God through Christ as the means by which we are to forgive others. The reason I think this is important is because when we think about the dynamics of forgiveness, why is it that many people don't want to forgive? Well, because it's hard. And sometimes we give up the upper, the, the moral upper hand when we receive someone who has done us wrong and then we forgive that debt. That we, we overlook them and, and treat them as if they haven't done us wrong. We feel like we've lost something. And I think it's also difficult for us to forgive because as psychologists have said, and I think many Christians sort of operate as if this is a Christian principle, that you'll never learn how to forgive others until you learn how to forgive yourself. And what Paul is saying is it's actually different than that. It's not, we don't, we don't forgive others because we've learned how to forgive ourselves. I would argue differently that the degree to which we are able to express forgiveness corresponds to the degree to which we are, un, we are able to unpack the forgiveness that we have been given by God through Christ. So I think the challenge here is not just the action of forgiveness, which is what Paul focuses on in verse 32. I really think the main point that he wants to drive home is for us to continue to live out of the dynamics of God's grace in forgiving us through Christ. Let our interactions with one another, let our underlying conflicts, because they're going to happen, let our conflicts be handled in a way that reflects what we have been given in Christ. And why? And you say, well, why should I forgive? Why? He did this, she did that, she said the other. Why? You know why? Because you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because you have been sealed with the Holy, the promised Holy Spirit. Because you, unlike others, have been brought near to, the, the, to God the Father through the blood of his Son. Because you, you're the one that's being built 
into the dwelling place of the Most High God by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, hard-heartedness is not hard to accomplish. Tender-heartedness is that God has given you the fullness of his spirit so that you could overcome the residue of your hard-heartedness. Forgiving what someone has done to you is not just hard for humans, but it's, it's virtually impossible. But you have been forgiven. And Paul's whole point here is that the grace that we have received from God the Father through the Son is to be reflected through us as we deal with others, not just broadly in terms of our neighbors in general, but especially as it relates to the context of Christian fellowship and community. Again, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, and forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. I pray that this would be helpful for us in our journey in grace as we serve our living Savior in the context of our brothers and sisters. We who are the recipients of such a magnanimous grace, let us be dispensers of the same. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do thank you for your tender mercies in him. We thank you for the benefits that we have simply because we cling to him by faith. We also, Father, are aware that we are unable to be and do what you've called us to be and do in and of ourselves. So strengthen us. Shift our gaze away from us unto him who is the author and finisher of our faith. And as we look unto him, we pray that you would strengthen us to be able to live in light of the love that we have received. So that as we deal with our brothers and sisters of like faith, tenderize our hearts by your grace. Reshift our attitudes and our words as we deal with them. Help us to forgive even as we have been forgiven. And strengthen our grasp on the knowledge of what it means to be forgiven by you. We do thank you for your word. We know that you by your spirit would strengthen us by that word. So let it resonate in our hearts. We pray that it would be our aim to live in its light. Thank you for your grace in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.